0: Now today we're actually going to be wrapping up our series called Tears, Understanding Evil, Suffering, and the Cross. And the reason why I decided to end it after three, uh, I wanted to jump into another series next week. But also, um, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about in terms of suffering, evil, and understanding the cross. Uh, But I felt like it would have been more appropriate in a a totally new series. And so we'll save that for a later date. Uh, But today we're going to be wrapping up this series. And uh, just to summarize for those that maybe are watching for the first time today or for those that just need a refresher. Because after one week, let's be real, uh, one week can be kind of a long time to remember things. Especially if they're coming from me. Um, but this series basically has been about this ideal that we're trying to understand evil, suffering, uh, in light of looking at the cross. And of course, as I mentioned before, last week and the week before that, that it's not going to be possible for us to fully grasp the ideal of evil and in uh, suffering. Uh, for many reasons, but there are certain things in this world where we honestly will not have that ability or opportunity to do so. However, there are many attempts, which is called theodicies, uh, to justify God in the midst of evil and suffering, um, that are presented that we can look at to help us bring peace and comfort and maybe a better understanding of the world that we live in today. Uh, And I shared with you guys that I strongly believe that the key into understanding the evil and suffering that we experience in this world is by simply looking at the cross. And hopefully today's message really puts a wrap to the entire uh, thing that I've been, or the series that I've been sharing with you guys, and that you see why I believe that by looking at the cross, we can have a better understanding of what's going on in our world today, and even in light of coronavirus. Now, uh, last week, we discovered that suffering... If you remember, suffering is not a one-faceted thing. Suffering has multiple different facets, and we looked at the three different facets of suffering: suffering from God, suffering from uh, Satan, and then suffering from sin. Right, and we have to understand that when it comes to suffering, to simply say that oh, it's all God's fault, like God is doing all of this. Uh, is a very dangerous approach into how um, we understand evil and suffering, because that goes against the character that God is love, right? And so I challenge that um, notion of of blaming God for all the evil and suffering in this world uh, and present it to you three different ways, right? Uh, And so those three different ways allows us to better see and understand that suffering not only comes from God, uh, but... Uh, God uh, allows or permits suffering, right? I actually um, this past week I had the opportunity uh, to be uh, part of a Bible study with another pastor, and we were leading a bunch of youth. And uh, the question brought, was brought up, and it got me really thinking. Not, I'm not saying that last week's message was completely wrong and uh, and whatnot. I, I shared with you guys that that suffering is. Uh, permitted by God, not necessarily produced by God. And I still agree that there is a big difference between permitting and uh, producing. Uh, to simply say that God produces all the evil and suffering in this world, I think is a very dangerous notion. And so I still stand by saying that, yes, I believe that God permits suffering over produces suffering. But if you look through the Bible, I think there's a reality that we have to face. And I think this was brought up uh, last week or two weeks ago um, by somebody. But they said, well, what about like Noah's flood? Oh, what about like Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, I'm pretty sure that was God that inflicted um, You know, the the floodwaters and God inflicted all of this and that. Uh, And so I agree. I do believe that God permits suffering, but there are instances in which God produces suffering. Now, I'm not going to go too much into that, um, but I will talk about that at the end. I'm not saying last week's sermon was uh, incorrect or wrong. I still believe that the majority of the suffering that we see, we cannot credit God and say, well, God, it's your fault you did this. But rather, we have to understand that there are certain things that God permits. And clearly in the Bible, as we see, there are certain things that God produces. But in what nature and what understanding and what aspect of that, we'll understand that a little bit later uh, today. Um, One other thing that we talked about is that it is in the suffering in which uh, sometimes, quite frankly speaking, we learn valuable lessons Only when things are difficult or when we're having a hard time. And I shared a few stories with you about that. Um, Hebrews 5, 8. And though he was the son, uh, he learned obedience through the things in which he suffered. Right? This ideal that even God himself, through certain difficulties and certain sufferings that he experienced, uh, was able to learn obedience. Right? And in the same way, sometimes for us, God leads us through these difficult times. Right? Not only does God lead us through the still waters and the green pastures, but sometimes God leads us to uh, the valley of the shadow of death, to the table in front of our enemies, right? And in those moments, sometimes we learn valuable lessons through that as well, right? And so we talked about that a little bit, but we also talked about that our endurance... Through times of difficulty and suffering is found in the confidence that we have in God's leading. And so I wanted to remind you last week to look at the spiritual practices that we take. To ask ourselves the question, uh, if God has taken care of me yesterday, has a yes or no? And if we can answer yes, then we can have the confidence that God will continue to take care of us tomorrow, in the future, in the present, right? Otherwise, we have to understand that we need to build our confidence in God, right? And we have to understand that the confidence that we have in God's leading is what gives us the rest, the reassurance, and the rest, the peace, and the comfort that we need as we face difficulties and trials of our day to day, right? And this was the powerful point, right? uh, That I wanted to leave last week on was that seek a relationship with God. Because it's when you begin to seek that relationship with God and see what God has done for you and what God can do for you, that's what leads us and propels us into the future, continuing uh, a strong uh, uh, faith with our Lord and Savior. right? Now, uh, two weeks ago, just to remind you a little bit of two weeks ago, we started the series talking about Psalms 23. This very well-known psalm uh, that is used in times of difficulties, trials, and tribulations. And there was four takeaways that we looked at. Um, one, when we have God, God is more than enough. Two, God's got our back. Three, death is not the house, but the pores. So as in death is not the end of everything. Uh, And then four, he leads where we need, not always where we want. And so that's kind of where we left the first week. Second week, we talked about building a spiritual walk, uh, strong spiritual confidence in God's leading. And today we're going to wrap up into uh, our final thing. And it's kind of a continuation of what we talked about last week. And so hopefully I'll clarify some things or questions that may have arised uh, due to um, my sermon last week. So first of all, uh, the scripture reading today was Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. Now I want to read this again with you guys. Uh, and it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when we read this verse, a lot of the times we, we read this and we think, Oh, man, yes, like things are going to be okay. Like everything's going to be fine. We read this part of Romans and we use this as a way to be like, you know, everything's going to work out for the good, right? God's got this in control as long as we're willing to follow him, right? And to follow his will. But the conundrum about this verse and the, the issue that we run into when we talk about this verse that lies beneath the surface is what is Paul saying when he means all things? Now, two weeks ago for Friday Vespers, in our discussion-based Friday Vespers, I brought up this verse, uh, but kind of just left you guys hanging there and didn't really talk about it. Uh, But all things, like what is Paul referring to? Why does Paul say all things, right? Is he really talking about all things or simply some things, right? I think Paul, without a doubt, if we are answering our own question, if Paul was here answering my question of what do you mean by all things? He would probably just say yes, right? Um, All things work together for good for those who love God, right? Not some, not a little, not just the good things, but all things, right? Even suffering works together for good, right? Pain works together for good. Even the evilness and the sin that fills our lives can produce work together for good, right? Now, honestly... um, Maybe if like things are going well for you right now, or maybe if, you know, you feel like life is good, uh, this could be just great, right? Like, oh yeah, like that's good. But when you find yourself in suffering, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, this is not a very easy pill to swallow, right? To say that all things work together for God's, for, or for good, right? It's easy for us to say, right? It's easy for me to say that, hey, don't worry, all things work for good. That's one thing, but to understand and to share that with other people, especially if somebody is going through a difficult time, to say that all things, even your suffering right now, is going to work together for good, that's not easy, right? Uh, And it may not be easy to understand why this is true. Why is Paul saying this? Paul is really pulling a leg here, right? Paul is really daring in his, his, his statement in Romans 8, 28, right? Now, it's important um, in order to really get a grip, a grip and understanding of why Paul says this and, and what basis does he have to say this. Um, I think it's important to understand what Paul doesn't say. right? And this kind of gives a little bit of perspective of what he does say. right? Thankfully, Paul does not write that all things are good. right? He doesn't say all things are good. Rather, um, he says that they will work out for good. Right? And this is a huge difference that we have to understand. He's not saying that all things are good. He's saying all things will eventually work out for good. Okay? Paul understands, just like we understand many of the evils and the bad things that we find in our world. Um, Paul understands that this world is completely broken. He understands the hurt and the pain and the suffering that we have to deal with in our daily lives. So Paul is telling us in Romans that all things work together for good to those who love God. He isn't asking us to believe that all things are good. He's telling us that all things will work out for good. Okay? And we have to make sure we understand that. Okay, We're not saying that the suffering and the evil and all the terrible things that happen in this world is not good. We're not saying, Paul's not saying that. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that either. I'm not saying that when you go through suffering, like, oh, that's good, right? We understand suffering is suffering and suffering is not good, right? Um, but with that clarified, now we have to ask this. Okay? Why in the world, or how in the world, is Paul so confident in saying this? How is Paul able to simply say, hey, all things are good, or not good, sorry. All things work together for God uh, for good, right? Uh, how, how is he able to say um, this bold statement? Where does the confidence come from, right? When somebody loses their job. Paul responds, hey, all things work together for good. Okay. When someone you know worked really hard in, in studying and doesn't get into the college that they wanted to get accepted into, but Paul says, Hey, all things work together for good. Okay? When a couple's marriage starts to fall apart, Paul looks at that and he says, Hey, all things work together. For good. When someone that we dearly love. Passes away. Due to sickness. Paul looks at you and says. Hey. All things work together. For good. Now this is. Okay. For me at least. And maybe for many of you guys. You. You have to question his confidence. Where in the world does he have the confidence to say such a thing. Right? And sometimes I think like. Man. Like. Like. What is paul doing by saying this is he like mocking me is he making fun of me like is he taunting me and maybe you feel the same way as well you see this statement in which paul makes is clearly not a straightforward statement nor is it a very comfortable statement right it's challenging it's very deep and it brings up a lot of questions quite frankly speaking now let me give you the answer first and then i'm going to explain as we go along okay The confidence in which Paul states that all things work together for good is found in none other than the cross, right? And I've been saying this this the whole time throughout this series that we're going to look at the cross. The cross is the answer, right? And here I think is a great example of where Paul looks at the cross as the solution and the answer and the confidence in which he is able to say such a thing. Right now, maybe that wasn't too surprising uh, because I've shared that this whole time, Uh, but let me explain how we can get to that answer. Okay, you see, the cross is the very heart of God, right? It's the very heart of God on display for all of us to see, it's revealing of what was in the heart of God from the beginning of time, it reveals the overflowing love of God for you and I. God doesn't say that he, God doesn't only just say that he loves us, right? God shows us that he loves us, right? He lived for us through the life of Jesus Christ. He dies for us, right? You see, basically, we see that God gave his everything. God gave everything and anything for you and I. Right? Now, if you're familiar with the unfamiliar with the Book of Romans, or maybe if you are familiar already, just to give a recap of what the letter to the Romans were about from Paul, this is basically the foundation of what Christianity Christianity is founded. Many Bible scholars and many people would agree that the Book of Romans is really the the foundation in which Christianity finds itself. Right, Paul's driving message and thrust of the Gospel of uh, or not of, of, or of the gospel message, not the gospel book, right, is the fact that Jesus died for you and for all of us, right? And it's because of that sacrifice that Jesus uh, Christ took on that cross, we are able to find everlasting life, right? And Paul says at the beginning of the letter, right, Romans 1, verse 16 to 17, this is what it says. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For it in for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, "They shall live by faith." Right now, notice this. There's a key word here. Right, God, or Paul doesn't say that the gospel created something new in God. It says, if you looked at verse 16, okay, um, or verse 17, God revealed. Right, meaning that there was something that was already there. Right, and that something that was already there was the love of God, right? The love of God for us, for humanity, for all mankind was already there. And simply, it was revealed to us, not something that was created new, right? Paul is saying that God is for real, right? God is for you and I, God is for us. And thus, we can trust in God. Now, I strongly believe that when Paul said that all things work together for good, I believe Paul was simply looking at the cross Paul was looking at the cross and saying, "Hey, this is how I'm able to say that all things work together for good." Well, I've sh- uh, now I've shared this before, uh, but I can't really emphasize um, how important it is to look at the context in which we're looking at certain verses, right? Um, and we, when we fail to look at certain verses within their context, then what happens is, is we run into this dangerous road of interpreting the Bible in ways that we want it to mean and ways that we want it to understand. And we, use, we could end up using the Bible in all the wrong ways. And so I think it's very important that we look at the context. And I shared this during our Jonah series where I talked about uh, this illustration. And for those that maybe didn't hear it or maybe don't remember or are unfamiliar, let me just quickly remind you. Okay. Uh, Um, the importance of context is everything. And the example I gave was think about, you know, you're sitting at a cafe and you sit next to this. uh, These two ladies that are talking and having a discussion. You overhear one of the ladies say, I swear to God, I'm going to kill him. Right. I'm going to kill him. Right. And all that's all you hear. And, and, and if you don't know the context of what the conversation is about, I pray that you would have an obligation to stand up and say, Hey, like, you know, uh, that's great and all, but maybe we can reconsider, like, let's talk it out. Like, you know, let me help you. Um, but we talked about this ideal that, that. It could mean anything, right? She could be talking about a fictional character in a book that she's writing. She could be talking about maybe her dog that has simply just peed in her car, and maybe she's just frustrated, or maybe she got into an argument with her husband and it's a figure of speech. She's not really gonna kill her husband, but she's just, you know, just really frustrated and, and very upset, right? context is everything if we don't understand the context of that conversation then we don't understand the context of what she was trying to say in the same way when we look at the bible if we don't look at the context in which certain things come out of then we risk the chance of misunderstanding the truth and misunderstanding the gist of what the bible is trying to tell us so with that in mind um with that in mind uh I think this is the same for the book of Romans. A lot of the times, we take out certain things from the book of Romans and simply use it to mean whatever we want it to. And I think Romans 8.28, a lot of the times, is simply used as that verse by itself. Without looking at the context and looking at the rest of what is being said. Um, Now, uh, Paul says all things, right? Paul is saying all things work together for good, including the bad, including the terrible. This statement uh, is really something that a lot of people struggle with. But I strongly believe um, that if we look at the context and we continue reading through, uh, Paul very clearly exposes and shares where his confidence comes from. Without any doubt, we see Paul simply explaining the question that you have in 2020, right? So we're going to break it down, and the rest of today's message is actually just going to be looking at this section of the Bible. We're going to be looking at Romans 8, verse 28, and we're going to keep going to uh, verse 39. So we're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to just look at this one at a time, okay? Let's look at verse 29, and this is what it says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now hear me out, okay? Hear me out. God has a plan for you. For me, for all of us, for all of mankind, for the universe, right? His plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, existed since the beginning of time. Okay? The key of this plan is redemption, restoration, reinstatement. You see, the basic punch of verse 29 is this God desires for everyone to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's God's plan, right? look at verse 30 now verse 30 says moreover whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he uh, these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified now hear me out if God justified you you can trust in him to get you to the stage of glorification right basically what Paul is trying to say here is that God will finish whatever he started Bible scholars tend to note that that Paul, interestingly enough, uh, doesn't mention the notion of sanctification, right? And it's odd because in Adventism and in a lot of different Christian denominations, uh, they understand that sanctification is one of the steps uh, in our experience of salvation. Now, for some of you younger people or maybe people that are not really familiar with it, uh, let me quickly explain this experience of salvation that we as uh, Adventists understand it to be. So first of all, um let, we're going to talk about just three things about the experience of salvation. Uh there's a lot of different things, but there's three steps, uh big steps that are mentioned. And that is justification sanctification, and then glorification. So basically, justification, uh, just as the the word says, right? It's the act of justifying, right? So even though uh, you are a sinner, God looks at you and says, no, you're not a sinner. Uh, And that's possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus has taken your place. And so in other words, you, even though you are filled with sin, God is saying, no, I'm going to look at what Jesus has done for you and say, you are not a sinner, right? Um, And we're basically, we're made right, we're we're justified or made right in the eyes of God, uh, not by our works, but through the works of Jesus Christ, right? So in other words, justification is Christ coming into our lives every day uh, as we surrender ourselves to Him, right? Jesus is, our God is constantly coming in every day into our lives and saying, you are saved. You are saved because of not your works, but because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Then we have sanctification, okay? Sanctification, which can get a little complicated, but uh, I'll try stating it as simple as possible. It's basically act in the idea in which God sets us aside and makes us, in other words, holy. That's the, that's the ideal of holy, right? It's the setting aside, making unique, making special, right? But it's not by our works, right? It's not by uh, what we do that makes us into holy people. Uh, In a people in which God chooses to set us aside, but it's through his power that we are made holy. In other words, um, if we're following along with what justification was, justification is Jesus coming into our lives every day, right? Sanctification is Jesus dwelling in our lives every day, okay? And then there's the final stage of glorification. Now, this is the final stage of redemption and adoption as a child of God. Right? It's when sin becomes no more and then we can freely live uh, our new lives in Christ forever and forevermore. Right? So glorification is only found in Jesus Christ and that's a reality that is yet to come. It's a reality in which we look forward to when we are glorified or glorification, this process of glorification happens and sin is no more. Right, But anyways, uh, hopefully that kind of, this is the point of what I'm trying to say with Paul. Okay. Interesting, Paul doesn't mention sanctification, right? The middle step in between justification and glorification. Okay. And he kind of skips it, but I really think that Paul does this intentionally because this is the notion, right? If Paul or if God starts the process, justification, God will come to the conclusion, glorification. God will finish the process regardless, right? And I think Paul was trying to emphasize that notion that God will start. Yeah. The middle is important. But God's going to finish it. So if we're going to finish the notion, if God's going to finish the sequence, the middle, you have to go through the middle, right? And so I think Paul understood this very clearly. And Paul wanted to bring emphasis that God will start whatever he finished, right? Let's continue. Verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Man, you guys, I love this verse. Uh, this, is, this used to be like my favorite, favorite verse when I started ministry uh, because it's like, come on, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Um, I really overused this verse in my ministry uh, at the beginning. Uh, for those that uh, were in Alaska or for maybe that knew me since Alaska would know that this was like my motto, my, my, my theme song uh, to my ministry, But here we find Paul asking a question, right? About how we should respond to these truths that we just heard. If God started something, God is going to finish, right? That God has a plan for everyone, right? And it's interesting because Paul asks or answers his question with another question, with a rhetorical question, right? Okay. And basically the answer to this, right? We don't have to answer it, but it's no one, no one, right? can be against us because God is for us. And this is, is is the start of understanding the confidence in which Paul has when he states that all things work together for good. It begins here, right? Now, some of us may be like, okay, like, how do I really know? How do I know that God is really for me, okay? Is God really for me, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? But how do I know this God is really for me, right? Paul heard you uh, just now thinking that, right? And this is made exactly for us, right? This is what it says in Romans 8.32. Hear me out. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And this is how we know that God is for us. And I hope you guys can catch this because what Paul is doing here is he's turning this scary doubtful all things that we mentioned before in verse 28. And he's turning it into this victorious confident all things, right? God is for you. God is for you. God for God is for us. Right. And it's all because of the cross, right? It's at the cross that the confidence uh, that Paul finds, uh, He's able to declare that all things work for good. If God has given you everything already, why would God hold anything back, right? Let's keep going. Romans 8:33 to 36. It says this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter man, I think he gets better and better, right? Paul really, really is very crafty in his way of of, of presenting his argument, right? Some of you may look at this, uh, at least this section here, and you may think, wait, like, it kind of seems like Paul is taking a step back, right? Re- the reality is, is he's, ta- he's talking about now tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. Um, he's talking about these kind of things, and we may think, like, Wait a second, like, why is he bringing up all these, like, scary things? He just changed this notion that all things were, was kind of, like, scary, kind of deep, kind of mysterious to this, oh, yeah, like, confident in in all things. And then he brings up these things, these kind of sufferings, right? But look at verse 37, okay? Yet, yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I love this, Okay. Paul is reusing this theme. I love the way that Paul does this. He brings this theme back and we find a variation of our phrase, all things as in all these things. Okay. Now, Paul is giving us more detail on what these things are, right? And he's obviously very clearly referring to what he had just mentioned in verse 36 or 35 and 36, right? These things in which he's referring to are tribulation. Distress, uh, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, right? These are the things in which Paul is referring to, okay? And it's crazy because despite the fact that we face these kinds of trials, these kinds of terrible, bad, evil things, Paul is calling us conquerors, right? Now, this doesn't really fly with us in 2020. Let's be real, okay? How can you be a conqueror when you're being persecuted? How can you be considered a conqueror when you're starving, you don't have food in your fridge? How can you be called a conqueror when you're in distress, when you're being bullied, right? When you're about to be killed, how are you a conqueror? Paul says this, you're a conqueror when you experience these kinds of things, right? But you see, Paul is able to confidently say this for one reason, okay? Because he understands this, he understands that he already belongs to God. He's heaven bound. He knows that God is for him. He knows that God can be trusted. He might not understand what or why of what's going on. But one thing he knows for sure is the who, right? He knows who it is that his trust is in. He knows who is for him, right? He may not know all the details, but he knows that it's God that's on his side. Paul concludes with verse 38 and 39. And this is what it says. It says, "For I am persu- persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord." You see, Paul wraps up his argument and his his his, his whole argument here. With the phrase, for I am persuaded. Um, And you see, Paul is extremely confident. He's extremely persuaded uh, with all the evidence that he just presented. Uh, And there's no point in arguing with Paul. Paul knows what he wants and what he understands, right? He won't budge. For him, it comes all down to this very fact. That the cross is proof that God will not and has not abandoned us. It's the very cross that proves that God wants and works for the very best of us, right? This is his confident cry to us, even in the year 2020, as this message has transcended generations to you today. Maybe you find yourself in suffering, but Paul is saying it's the cross. It's the reminder of what happened on the cross, that we are able to have this confidence that God is for us. The main point of Paul's message, the thesis to his message is this. The cross is our guarantee that God is on our side. Through all things, God is for you. You see, it's the cross that proves to us that God has not, has not, and will not abandon us ever, never, right? And not even in the worst times of your lives, right? And we know this. The reason why we know this is if you look in Matthew 27 46, okay, it says, Alai Allah la mashabatani, right? That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Okay. Now, if you know the story, if you know what's going on here, uh, this is where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and Jesus cries out, right, to the Father, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. You see, Jesus didn't feel forsaken in this moment. Jesus was forsaken. It was very clear. Jesus understood. Not only did he feel the forsakenness, right? Jesus was forsaken. Okay? And for the very fact that Jesus was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. Hebrews 13:5 says, "For He himself has said, "I will never leave you, nor forsake you." Now this isn't to neglect the pain or the suffering um, that we may feel,? Right? We may feel abandoned, we may feel uh, hurt. The Bible doesn't say to ignore how you feel. The Bible doesn't say that those feelings are irrelevant. Right? The Bible is all about understanding the way that we feel. And God understands the pain that we feel as well on this earth. Right. Even Jesus was very in tune with his emotions. Right. We the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? Jesus was so aligned when his friend passed away, Lazarus, right? When his friend passed away, there was sorrow, right? You, we have to understand that feelings are not to be neglected. Feelings are very relevant. You may feel suffering. You may feel the ramifications of evil. You may feel abandoned. You may feel like God has left you, and that's totally fine. But we have to understand this. I'm not saying to ignore those feelings, but there's a feel, there's a big difference that we have to distinguish between feeling and fact. Okay, we need to understand. And learn that when it comes to those feelings of abandonment, of, of rejection, of hurt, of pain, of frustration, of fear. When we feel those things, those feelings, what God is calling us to do is not to ignore them. But to simply bring them to the cross. right? Because it's at the cross that those feelings disappear. It's at the cross that those feelings dissolve. And it's at the cross that we witness and see the very Jesus who was abandoned in both feeling and fact. Right? It's when we look at the cross and we see what Jesus has done. Right? We see the fact that there was a God that was forsaken. He felt forsaken. But he was, in fact, indeed forsaken as well. You see, we may not understand or have the answers to everything in our lives. Especially now with hurt and pain and the suffering that may haunt us. Uh, As we live our lives. But what we do have is the answer that gives us the confidence despite the uncertainty that we faced. Let me say that one more time. Let me rephrase it. This is the key point of my message today. It's at the cross where we learn to accept what we don't know about God and His plan on the basis of what we already do know. It's at the cross where we learn to accept the things that we don't know about God and His plans for us on the basis of what we do know. Now, last week, uh, now this is where I want to clarify what I talked about last week. Yes, I believe that God does permit suffering. Uh, but I believe now, uh, with this studying of Romans, that God also can uh, produce suffering. Okay? But one thing that we have to understand uh, is that if God produces suffering, there are some things that we may not understand why God does that, right? Uh, one pastor shared with me this example that I'd like to share with you guys as well. Um, but if, let's just say, you know, I was the most evil person in the world, right? And you had to uh, share a room with me. And I was an extremely evil, terrible person. And I every little thought that I had was like, how can I take advantage of you? How can I use you? How can I uh, hurt you? How can I make your life miserable, right? For you, that would be absolutely terrible, right? You would think like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is not a great place to be, right? But let's just say both of us were evil, right? Let's say both of us were extremely evil and we wanted to, to rip each other's heads off and we just had the worst intentions for each other, right? Now, if God were looking at that, what do you think the best thing to do would be? Right. And in the case of like Noah's flood or Sodom and Gomorrah, that's exactly what the situation and what was happening. Right. And so the best thing in which God could do was to, in essence, end their suffering. Right. Now, I know that's a very like it sounds very harsh, but think of it this way as well. Um, if you remember in the Jonah series as well that we, we talked about, we talked about this ideal of judgment and we have to understand that in judgment. Right that judgment is not necessarily god is angry at us or hating us but judgment is an expression of god's love for us right it's the it's the opposite side of the same coin right that when god is bringing rendering a judgment on us it's not because he wants to make us miserable but it's because he wants us to come back to his to to the right path right to us or to, to the father now in the same way i think the suffering that is produced by god in some instances, could be also an expression of God's love. And I think it's very clear that we, we distinguish, right? That God may do certain things like Noah's flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God produces these things, but it's important that we don't say, well, God produced it, all these sufferings and pain. But rather, instead of looking at the unknown and trying to attack God for the things that we don't know, to look, and what Paul is saying here, is to look on the things that we do know which is the cross, which is what Jesus did and died for our sins so that we could have everlasting life. To look at that and say, hey, I'm going to accept whatever God has for me because I can have the confidence that if God has done this for me in the past, that God, if God has done this on the cross, right? then even the uncertainty, even the unknowns in our lives, even the suffering and the pain that we see now in this world today, that despite those things, I can put my trust in God I can put my trust in what God has for me. My confidence is found in the things that we know, not necessarily the things that we don't, right? Now, church, as I wrap up this series, you know, obviously, as I mentioned before at the beginning, there's no way in which I can cover every little detail about suffering. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that I've missed and maybe I've produced more questions than answers for some of you. and hopefully, that's something that I can cover more in depth in future Bible studies or even in future sermons. But one thing that I pray and wish I can leave with you is this We live in a reality where we feel and experience suffering and evil. It's an inevitable part of how, what we live in. And even more so in the year 2020, in this current present day, that evil and suffering is an inevitable part of our daily lives. And we're journal, journey, 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 taking a journey. Uh, through a world in which is not our home, and yet instead of looking at this evil and suffering in our world and blaming God of how we for how we feel, I want to challenge you guys as a church to look at the facts that Jesus on the cross took, the ultimate form of pain and suffering for our sake now. This is not a message of trying to make you feel bad or accuse you if you already have had ill feelings towards God or resentment towards God. It's more of a message of trying to look at the bigger picture, right? To look at the things that we do know rather than focus on the things that we don't. To understand that it's not just these experiences of pain and suffering uh, that we see in this world, but, but even God Himself understands that pain and suffering. Because God Himself, through Jesus Christ, experienced that as well. So that we don't have to experience that for eternity. You see, when we look at the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I strongly believe that we can hold on to the promise that God is willing to do everything and anything for you and I. And even if we don't know what the world is presenting with us today, even if we don't know, I strongly believe that we can have the confidence just like Paul. In all things, we'll work together for good. You know, in a time like now where there's many questions and maybe resentment towards God, and we face many different unknowns, I pray that we as a church can continue and even begin maybe to put our faith and our hope in the things that we know That God has done for us in the past. And if that means going back to the very basics of our faith. The very foundations of where our faith lies. To looking at the key fundamentals of the gospel. And to realign our sights in this time of uncertainty. I think now is the most appropriate time in which we can do so. So church, I want to challenge you. Whatever it takes. I pray that God puts this burden in your lives. To start looking at the things that God has done for us. By looking at the gospel message. By looking at the works in which God has done over generations and generations of time. That in light of the the evil and the, the suffering that we face. That we can look to the cross and say, God, you have been a good God. You always will be a good God. And you are a good God in the midst of the evil and suffering we face. I pray that this is our hope and this is um, where our faith lies. Let's pray.